Hello, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 25th of January 2013, and welcome to the first in a series of interviews, Does Anyone Really Believe in World Government? And to begin this series, I'm very honoured today to be speaking to Dr. Stanley Monteith, who joins us over the phone line from Monterey in California. Dr. Monteith is a retired orthopaedic surgeon who for many decades has been researching into the causes of America's spiritual and moral decline, and who for the last 20 years or so has been extremely active in speaking and writing on geopolitical matters and hosting for a grueling five hours a day a talk radio show, Radio Liberty, which is broadcast across the US and, so far as I know, still to the whole world. I have myself been listening to Radio Liberty on and off since the early 1990s, and so I'm very delighted that Dr. Monteith has been able to come on the show. So, Dr. Stan, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to appear on The Mind Renewed. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you, Julian. Now, just before we get going, I'd like to ask you quickly about Monterey, if I may, where you live, because you always say at the beginning of your broadcasts that you're speaking to us from the hills overlooking beautiful and picturesque Monterey Bay. So... For those of us like me who are not familiar with that area of the world, what's it like to live over there in Monterey? Well, it's really beautiful. Actually, I live in a place called Soquel, the hills above Santa Cruz. And, of course, we uh, look across the bay at Monterey. But Monterey Bay is a beautiful area about 70 miles south of San Francisco along the coast. Of the bay must be about oh, 30 to 40 miles wide. It's a beautiful, beautiful spot, a very temperate climate I just feel blessed to live here. I've lived here for over 55 years now, and I really wouldn't want to live any other place. I'm quite envious, actually. It's very, very cold here. Is it uh, cold where you are? Not really. Um, if we get down to freezing, it's very unusual. No, we we have a very temperate climate uh, because of the, uh, the ocean. Basically, uh, we have one of the best climates in the whole world, which is why people are attracted to come and live in California. Wonderful. I wish it was above freezing here. It's uh, it's snowing, actually, as I speak over here in the UK. Well, we almost never have snow in Santa Cruz. <laughs> I can't remember when, uh, when uh, maybe 20 years ago, we had a snowstorm. That was it. So it's, wow. an, it's an entirely different world, and we're blessed to live here. Now, if I may, I'd like to return to the introduction you use on your broadcasts, and you go on to say that you're bringing the news behind the news and the story behind the story. And there's one such story behind the story that you've been researching into for many decades, and that is the connection between secret societies and various really quite well-known globalist organizations around the world, particularly the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S., the Trilateral Commission, and one which has become more well-known in recent years, the Bilderberg Group. So could I first of all ask you to explain about the Council on Foreign Relations? What does the CFR itself claim to be? But according to your research, what do you think it is in reality? Well, the Council on Foreign Relations is supposedly just a think tank addressing the issues that face America. Uh, and, of course, to some extent, America's foreign policy and the policies that uh, they affect the world. But in reality, the Council on Foreign Relations is a front for a secret society that was created in 1891 by Cecil John Rhodes, for whom Rhodesia is named, uh, the Rhodes Scholarships at Oxford are named, and of course this whole movement uh, that he dreamed about 
about creating a world government where there'd be no more wars, there'd be no more hunger, there'd be no poverty. Everything would be wonderful and people would live happily ever after. That was basically the dream that Cecil Rhodes had. And basically he laid out a plan back in 1875. He wrote something called a Confession of Faith. And you can actually get that from my ministry. It's available up on the Internet. Cecil Rhodes' Confession of Faith. And in that, he said, why don't we form a secret society to bring about this utopian world government? Now, how do I know about the Confession of Faith? Well, in 1980, I went back to Georgetown University. I went to the papers of a professor named Carol Quigley, a brilliant probably one of the most brilliant historians of the last century. And basically, he had been a professor at Harvard and at Princeton before he went to Georgetown University, where he certainly was one of the leading historians there. He was a brilliant individual. He believed, of course, that most people are very, very incapable of handling their own affairs. He believes we need a ruling oligarchy to rule the world, and he was totally in favor of the secret society that Cecil Rhodes had created, uh, but he, of course, felt that the public had a right to know. He did not believe in the concept of secrecy. And Professor Quigley is a fascinating individual. I spent many weeks going to his papers at Georgetown University before they could be shredded and destroyed or went there shortly after he died. But the basic history is this. Professor Quigley went to England shortly after the Second World War ended, about 1946, 1947, because he wanted to research the part that the royal family and the hierarchy of England played in directing both English and international policy. And while he was there, he became friends with a, a professor at Oxford named Alfred Zimmern. And after they'd become close friends, uh, Professor Zimmerman said, look, you're wasting your time, Carol. Uh, you'll never understand what's really going on in England unless you understand there's a secret society. I know because I was part of that secret society. I left it in 1921 because I disagreed with their policy towards Germany. Well, here we'd fought a terrible war against Germany uh, from 1914 to 1918, and we defeated Germany. And then, of course, immediately after the war was over, why the secret society I was part of actually wanted to form an alliance with Germany and turn against our former ally France. I felt it was immoral, and so I dropped out. But they're the ones who run England. Well, Professor Quigley uh, said he was fascinated with this, and he and Zimmern talked a long time about the secret society Zimmern belonged to. And, of course, uh, Professor Zimmern insisted that Quigley never tell where he got the information on the secret society. He feared for his life, and justifiably so. Now, how do I know what happened? Well, because when I went to Professor Quigley's papers, I found the, all the letters that they exchanged between Zimmer and Quigley. But Professor Quigley wrote two books on the subject. One is called The Anglo-American Establishment. He wrote the book in 1949. I went into the whole background of the secret society, how it controlled England, really starting in the early 1900s, how it controlled England in 1949, and no publisher in America would publish the book. It was only published, I think, about four years after Professor Quigley died, and he died in 1976. The book was published in 1981 by a man 
who is frightened to death. In fact, I contacted him, and I asked him to come on my program. He had gotten a copy of the manuscript out of Quigley's papers. He published the book and then lived in constant fear they would come after him because it revealed the existence of the secret society, and he, quite frankly, was afraid to come on my radio program. But then, of course, in 1966, Professor Quigley published his major book on the secret society. It's called Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. The tragedy was because, of course, of the terrible wars that we fought, World War One and World War Two. The hope was that the secret society would accomplish their goal of creating a one-world government run by a ruling oligarchy, which Professor Quigley identified with and was very close to all of his professional life. But he wrote about them because he felt that people had a right to know history. And we're indebted to Professor Quigley for revealing what he revealed. Now, I know what he revealed is true because I went through his papers and I copied those papers. And, of course, I distributed them. So in case somebody came after me and uh, tried to burn down my home or kill me, the papers would be in other people's hands, or they are. And we have several copies of all the papers distributed so that, uh, well, so far nothing's happened to me. And so we have then written as much as we could and talked as much as we could about what Professor tell us is about the secret society that not only controlled England, it eventually was came to be controlled by a front group. It's called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. It's located at number 10 St. James Square in London, and it is the group that controls your government. It dominates, it works closely with the monarchy. Your parliament over the, in England is simply a front. They don't make the decisions. The decisions are made by the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the hierarchy that runs that. A comparable group was established in the United States in 1921, and that is the Council on Foreign Relations, which is located at 58 East 68th Street in New York City, and I've been there. I've been through their files on several occasions. And, of course, the whole purpose of the Royal Institute, not only in England, but their comparable groups in South Africa and New Zealand and Australia and in Canada and in most of the members of the British Commonwealth, which is really what joins the Commonwealth together. And the average Englishman has no idea because your media is controlled and you're never going to have the chance of learning the truth that your electoral system, your so-called democratic process, is totally fraudulent. There's a small elite group made up of bankers and financiers and educators who believe in this concept of world government and are using the financial and military power of your country and, of course, of my country to bring about this world government, which is why the United States today has troops stationed in 130 nations and, as of two weeks ago, it was announced we were going to send our military troops to an additional 35 nations in Africa. This is why there's a war going on in Mali today, where France is acting as a surrogate for the United States, but we're providing the funding and air cover for the French as they take on the Islamists there who want a separate country of their own, and I certainly support that idea. If they want to have a separate government and country, they should, but they're not going to be allowed to. America is installing in England the Anglo-American establishment, as uh, the term is used, because England and America always work together. 
to establish and put into positions of power dictators who will go along with this idea of world government. And we've recently seen them topple the government of Egypt, of Tunisia, of Libya. They toppled the government of Turkey back in 2002. And of course, now they've installed an Islamic government there. They've done the same thing in Lebanon. They've done it in Iraq. and They've done it in Afghanistan. These are all Islamic governments radical jihadist governments under Sharia law. This is all preparation for World War III. Uh, these men, of course, fight wars to bring peace. They create war after war after war because they want to bring about world peace. And the best way to change the world is through war. Started with the Boer War, then World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, First Gulf War, Second Gulf War, and World War III is coming. We, all we can do is warn people to prepare for the very difficult times that lie ahead. But the Council on Foreign Relations in our country is a front for the secret society that Cecil Rhodes created. In 1891, it pursues his goal of creating a world government, and that is not only the goal of the Council on Foreign Relations, that is the basis of American foreign policy today. Does that answer your question? It does indeed, and one of the things which you point to in the more modern literature from uh, the Council on Foreign Relations with their publication, Foreign Affairs, is a particular article written by Richard Gardner. Do you want to say something about that? Well, that was that was a long, long time ago, but of course in that article, that was back in 74, Richard Gardner had talked about this necessity for creating a world government, but I do recommend people read Foreign Affairs. And when you see the lead article, it will tell you what's really going on. If it's written by a member of the elite group that runs Sydney, uh, the world, Sydney here in America, why a man named Richard Haas is the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. And a few years ago, he wrote a book, wrote an article about austerity. We were going to have austerity in America and throughout the world. This was absolutely necessary because the financial system was breaking down and, of course, that is simply a prologue to what you see in England today, where more and more people are out of work, your industries, your manufacturing is falling off. England is having real financial problems. This is all planned by the elite. It's happening all over the world as a prologue to the coming World War III. But Richard Gardner, writing back in 19. The 74 had written about the necessity of this idea of creating this world government. And suddenly we can go through so many of the articles in Foreign Affairs magazine. Now, you have a comparable magazine in England. It's called International Affairs. It's published by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. But here in the United States, their official journal is the Foreign Affairs magazine. Mm -hmm. However, the Council on Foreign Relations is no longer the primary organization. Basically, the existence of this organization was concealed. Very few people knew about it. A friend of mine, John Stormer, wrote a book in 1964. It was called None Dare Call It Treason. None Dare Call It Treason. And he put out about 7 million copies of this little paperback book. He put them out at 10 cents each so people could afford to buy them. And he outed the Council on Foreign Relations and introduced the concept. And then Eight years later, uh, Gary Arnold, a man named Gary Arnold, wrote a book called None Dare Call It Conspiracy, which laid out much of the story I've told you so far. 
And out of the Council on Foreign Relations, they put out 10 million copies of that book, read widely across America, and people began to talk about the Council on Foreign Relations and the fact that it ran both political parties, that our political process, our elections were totally fraudulent, and there was an elite that controlled America, controlled the corporations, the banks, controlled the military, controlled the media, controlled our churches, controlled the educational system, and largely determined what the American people thought and believed. Well, after that book came out in 1972, and then they're called a conspiracy, David Rockefeller, who is the senior member of the Rockefeller family, which are the richest people in the world, we, we hear about here in America about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, and these are the wealthiest people, and of course that's a lie. They only have, I think, 30 or $40 billion each. The Rockefeller family controls trillions of dollars, but this is never mentioned. David Rockefeller was the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations for 15 years pursuing this globalist program. Then he became the honorary chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, which he is today. But in 1972, David Rockefeller decided they needed another organization, so he hired a man named Zygmunt Brzezinski, Zygmunt Brzezinski, to form the Trilateral Commission. And the Trilateral Commission was not only American, it was international. It's made up of an Asian branch, a European branch, and the American branch of the Trilateral Commission. You can go to their website at trilateral.org, where, of course, you can see their logo. It's made up of a circle with three curved arrows. If you look closely, you'll see their sixes. You'll see the 666 joined together in the center by an upside-down broken cross. And that's surely what it's all about. This is an occult organization. Cecil Rhodes was involved in the occult. The people who joined with him to in this pursuit of a world government were involved in the occult. And it is these occult organizations, both the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, which are, are the major force behind this move towards world government. And if you're coming at this from a Christian point of view, you realize, of course, it's been prophesied for thousands of years we would establish a world government, we would reconstitute the government that Nimrod tried to produce, you know, in the area about 200 years after the Great Flood. And of course, Nimrod wanted to build the Tower of Babylon to reach the heavens. He wanted to replace God with a one world government under his control. And of course, that failed. And basically, this movement continues today. There were secret societies at the time of Nimrod. There were secret societies today, literally dozens of them. And we describe them in my book, Brotherhood of Darkness, and most people don't understand. Yes, could I uh, ask you about something that you quote in the Brotherhood of Darkness? You, you have a quote from Gary Carr where you're talking about these occult influences. And I think when we talk about occult, we need to be clear that we're talking here about Luciferian and theosophical influences. And Gary Carr points to, I think he's talking about the Council on Foreign Relations uh, in relation to 
uh, the Lucis Trust. Well, I'll, I'll quote him exactly, if I may. This is in your book. Lucis Trust, an organization which Alice Bailey originally founded in the 1920s under the name Lucifer Publishing Company, today boasts a membership of approximately 6,000 people. Some of the world's most renowned financial and political leaders have belonged to this organization, including individuals such as Robert McNamara, Donald Regan, Henry Kissinger, David Rockefeller, Paul Volcker, and George Shultz. This is the same group of people that runs the Council on Foreign Relations, the organization responsible for founding the United Nations. Now, what I wanted to ask you is, I know you've mentioned about this logo that the Trilateral Commission has, but just returning to the CFR for a moment, does your research actually bear out this claim that there is uh, an occult influence in this uh, CFR? Well, of course, it is a front for the secret society that Cecil Rhodes created. And Cecil Rhodes and the people in his original secret society, there were four of them, were all involved in the occult. At least three of them we know were. Certainly Cecil Rhodes was a mason. Lord Milner was a mason. A man named Lord Escher, and I do not, he was deeply involved in the occult and then the fourth member of the uh, secret society was actually a theosophist. He was involved in theosophy uh, and certainly in spiritualism. Mm-hmm. So all of the original members of the secret society uh, were deeply involved in the occult. And then they began at first to recruit others into their organization. They set up the next level, which was known as the Association of Helpers. And these people came from other occult organizations in England. And then as the organization expanded and came to have hundreds of members, they were recruiting people from occultism. Yes, certainly this is all occult. There really is a Lucius Trust. You can find it up on the Internet. They do not give you, of course, the membership list of that. It's very hard to get. And I'm indebted to Gary Call for what he said, because this is so true. Basically, the leaders of America today, tied into the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, are also tied into the Lucius Trust, which used to be known as the Lucifer Publishing House. In fact, that was organized initially by a woman named Barbara Marks Hubbard, and uh, sitting right next to me on the table is a copy of the last edition of her book. She talks about the fact that we are now entering a new age. In fact, recently, of course, we had this episode December 21st of last year. Many people said, oh, the world's going to end. The Mayan calendar ends. Uh, so much points mm-hmm. to the fact that this is going to be the transformation of society. And Barbara Marks Hubbard, if you read what she says, she says December 21st, 2012, was the transition from the old age to the new age. We are now in the age of Aquarius, or we will move rapidly towards world government. Barbara Marks Hubbard is certainly one of the senior members of this whole Luciferian movement that dominates our political parties, our economic system, and indeed, behind the scenes, controls the world today. And I understand that in in one of her publications, although I think she might have revised it since, but in an original copy of that, did she not say some rather disturbing things about uh, what might happen to people who are not prepared to go along with this new age agenda? Yes, basically, in the original text of her book, why she basically talked about how there is a quarter of the people who certainly will go along with the world government, and that's great, about half the people in the world really won't go along. They'll just sort of drift in and do whatever they're told. But there's a quarter of the world who will object to what's going on today and will try to fight it 
and they are going to have to be destroyed. They're going to have to be killed. And then he goes on to say, but that is not your job, my dear. That is ours, for we are the riders of the pale horse, death. Those are exact words. I have a copy of the original, original manuscript. Now, when she published the book, why she took that out, um, the original book, of course, I have a copy of when it was published for general consumption. They took that part out. They really don't want the public to realize they intend to kill off a large segment of the population of the world. Her words were, that is not your job, referring to killing the quarter of the population who will go along, and that's the Christians, of course. Uh, that is our job, my dear, for we are the riders of the pale horse, death. And you'll find that quotation in my book, Brotherhood of Darkness. Yes, indeed. And uh, I was speaking to Chris White a few weeks ago, and uh, he mentioned the very same quote. And it's, it's very, certainly very uh, sobering, very chilling to think about that. Could I just turn back to uh, David Rockefeller? You said that he was a, a big figure in the CFR. And indeed, as far as I understand, in his memoirs in 2002, he basically did admit that he was part of a cabal working towards global government. Can I just quote what he says there? He says, some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. So that seems to me like an admission that that's really what it's about. And that's really what it is about. But then he goes on. And for, for your listeners out there, the book is Memoirs. You can get it through my ministry. But if you're in England, you'd be a lot better off, I'm sure, to get it at a bookstore over there. But then he goes on to say, but look, I mean, look what we've done throughout the world. We've raised living standards throughout the world. I mean, you criticize me. What would you have done to raise living standards throughout the world? And he's absolutely right. They have raised living standards in China and in India, and they've created a middle class in China, which never existed before. Uh, but basically, of course, look what's happened in the intervening 10 years between 2002 and this year, 2013. And you've seen the living standards in England go down, and we've seen the living standards in America going down. And the living standards are going down in Europe. Mm. They're going down in first world countries, and they're intensely raising the living standards in third world countries, and they're going to end up impoverishing the people in your country and in my country. This is all manipulated, and the average individual doesn't understand what's happening, that this is all part of the plan for austerity that Richard Haas called for in the article he wrote in Foreign Affairs probably three or four years ago. You can look this up. I'm sure you can put in Richard Haas, Foreign Affairs magazine, in your search engine and track that article down and read it. I think it was co-authored by a man named Altman. They're both members of the Trilateral Commission, incidentally. And they were just saying how we're going to have to lower the living standards in the first world countries. They know exactly what they're doing. One more thing about that book you mentioned. In the book Memoirs by David Rockefeller, he talks about how his daughters frequently go down to visit Fidel Castro and how they're very close to Fidel Castro, the communist dictator of Cuba. And then he even talks about how Fidel Castro has come up to visit him. Uh, but, of course, he will not tell what they talked about. 
but that he and Fidel Castro have had at least one private meeting. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, the significance is, of course, what we talk about and point out, that there never was a communist threat. Communism from 1917 on was actually financed by people like Lord Milner, one of the four original members of Cecil Rhodes Secret Society. Then in 1917, Lord Milner was certainly the second most powerful man in Great Britain, second only to the Prime Minister, and he actually, I'm sure, at that time, controlled the Prime Minister, Lloyd George. I mean, after all, Lloyd George had a secretariat, and three of the six members, or five members of the secretariat came from Cecil Rhodes Secret Society, which at that time... Cecil Rhodes was dead by then, but Lord Milner, head of the Secret Society, and in 1917, he went over to Russia to destabilize the Tsar's government, to bring to power the communist government, and that's what they did. They financed communism. Why? Because you needed an enemy to get the people of your country and here in America, of my country, to feel that there was an enemy. We had to give more power to our government. We had to have a big military to protect us from the very enemy that had been created intentionally. Communism doesn't work. It never worked in Russia. Communism doesn't work in China. That's why they've adopted a capitalist system over there, which is working very well. But communism never worked in Russia. It had to be constantly financed by American and British financiers. We had to transfer them technology, loan them countless billions of dollars so they could maintain their military as a, a threat to America. And it was all phony. There was no ever a threat to your country or to my country from communism because it didn't work and because the people hated the system. But we kept this ruthless dictatorship in power so that the American and British people would feel we had an enemy and we had to rally behind our leaders in England, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, in America, the Council on Foreign Relations, and more later on, the Trilateral Commission and the Bilderbergers. Fascinating indeed, and I'd like to now ask you to, if you could possibly say a little bit more about the Trilateral Commission, because I believe you said that David Rockefeller was not really, not really satisfied with what had been achieved through the Council on Foreign Relations, and then he set up the Trilateral Commission with uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. Was that in 1973? Could you say something more about this organization? Well, the Trilateral Commission is the invisible government of the United States today. Now, Today, there is an American chapter, North American chapter of the Trilateral Commission. There's a European chapter, which the leaders of England belong to. And then there's the Asian chapter, with the leaders of China and Japan and certainly the Malaysian countries all belong to. Here in the United States, the Trilateral Commission controls America. Now, that's a, quite a, a strong statement, but let me tell you, you can document what I'm saying at augustreview.org. That's Pat Wood's website. Pat has analyzed this since the late 1970s when he and my friend, Professor Anthony Sutton, who was a uh, Sydney, a resident scholar at Hoover Institute until he told the truth, and then they got rid of him. But Professor Sutton had written a number of books on Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, pointing out that we'd financed Hitler from the very inception because we needed an enemy so we could have World War II and then, of course, draw closer to, to Russia during the war and use that as a vehicle for transferring massive amounts of wealth to Russia to build up their military so they would be this threat so we'd have to, of course, then 
convince the American people that we had to rally behind our leaders. But as far as the Trilateral Commission is concerned, from 1977 to 2004, every president of the United States and or vice president of the United States, sometimes both, sometimes just one or the other, has been a member of the Trilateral Commission. That was from 1977 to 2008. That would be Jimmy Carter, his vice president, uh, Ronald Reagan's vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, member of the Trilateral Commission. And then, of course, when he lost the election in 1992, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, from 92, they were the president and vice president. From the year uh, 2001 to 2008, why Dick Cheney was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And, of course, George W. Bush was not a member, but his dad, George Herbert Walker Bush, was. Barack Obama is not a member of the Trilateral Commission. However, there are only 87 members of the North American chapter, and incidentally, anybody out there in the audience who's skeptical about what I'm saying, go to their website, and you can actually pull down the membership list, the European membership list, and of course the American, the North American chapter. There's 87 members, some of them are Canadians, some are Mexicans, most are Americans. But of that 87 members of the Trilateral Commission, as I pointed out, Barack Obama picked 11 of them uh, to actually surround him, and Timothy Geithner, Secretary of the Treasury, the Deputy Secretary of State, three other members of Secretary of State, uh, certainly Hillary Clinton uh, was not a member of the Trilateral Commission, but her husband was, Susan Rice, the American ambassador to the United Nations, uh, certainly the closest top-level advisors to the, the president, the head of the National Security Council, his assistants. They were the 11 members of the Trilateral Commission. The Trilateral Commission controls the American government. Now, the American people don't know that. Certainly when Hillary Clinton announced that she was going to resign and uh, Barack Obama uh, suggested we'd put in Susan Rice as the Secretary of State, why, of course, Susan Rice came to the membership roles of the Trilateral Commission. She had to drop out when she became a government official, but till 2008, she was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Of course, she was certainly discredited because of some remarks she made. So they picked another person for the Secretary of State in the United States. His name is John Kerry, and you never guess where he came from. Senator John Kerry, member of the Trilateral Commission. There's only 87 members. It's always the same people who control the government. It doesn't matter whether they're Democrats or Republicans. That's all simply for the simple people. The elite rule America. They rule England. They rule the world today. And their goal is a one-world government. And people say, well, if they have that much control over America, why haven't they taken over? And my answer is they have taken over. But they can't let the people know because they want to use the financial and military power of our country and of your country as well to bring about this world government. And that's what it's all about. And when you understand that, it all makes sense. Otherwise, so little going on today makes real sense. Why would America be over there? Why did America go to, to war with Iraq for a non-existent weapons of mass destruction? I mean, we, we destroyed the country. We killed almost a million people. And there were no weapons of mass destruction there that had already been sent to Syria. They knew that. But they couldn't let the American people know that. They always have to give them excuses for going to war. 
and they plot war after war. Sometimes their plans don't work out. Usually they do, though, and certainly they're preparing us now, your country and mine, for war with the Muslim world, and there are going to be horrible, horrible complications. Probably hundreds of millions of people are going to die in this coming great war. A few minutes ago, you were on the edge, I believe, of quoting Barry Goldwater, former Republican U.S. Senator for Arizona, where he said that the uh, Trilateral Commission is a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical, in the creation of a worldwide economic power superior to the political governments of the nation-states involved. And one thing that I noticed there particularly is this ecclesiastical dimension to this. Um, have you looked into that very much? Absolutely. They've infiltrated our churches in your country and mine. They've changed the message of the churches. Incidentally, the quotation you just gave came from Barry Goldwater's book, With No Apologies. And we suggest that people read that book, With No Apologies, by Barry Goldwater. And you read the chapter from about 274 or 276. I think it's 274 to the end of the chapter. And there, Chris, he talks about how they're going to transform the society, they're going to take control of the financial and the educational, but also of the religious. They use the term ecclesiastical force within our society. Yes, basically they've neutralized Christianity. Yes, one of the things I wonder whether the watering down of the gospel message is something that might possibly have some funding from this source. Oh, absolutely. I mean, basically, people must understand that the funding for so much of what goes on today comes, at least in the United States, from our great tax-exempt foundations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, the Pew Foundation. Fabulous amounts of money, hundreds of billions of dollars are there, and they're disseminated, of course, to religious organizations and political organizations and cultural organizations. But primarily with the religious, it's so important that they were able to change the message of the Christian church. And as I mentioned earlier, of course, they've certainly infiltrated the Catholic church, the Catholic seminaries, and their agents are working at the highest levels of the Catholic church today, which is why, of course, the church has protected the band of pedophile priests who have been molesting boys here in America. So they, in the Protestant church, of course, they've done similar things. They've changed the message of our Protestant church. People who want to be ministers go to seminaries, and there they learn what they think is the truth. And they don't understand that if you want to change the message of the Protestant faith while you infiltrate the seminaries, you put your people there who profess to believe in Christianity but are there to subtly change the message. Well, I have to say to you that, uh, in fact, I covered some of this when I was speaking to Dean Gotcher a few weeks ago, that I actually did part of a ministerial training program. And although I have no idea where the purse strings were held in any of that, my experience was that at the college, the gospel was in many, many ways denied. And uh, it was very difficult to go through that program as a believer with an eye to ministry in the church and yet find that the gospel was being sidelined, was being denied. Many of the tutors there actually denied uh, such major doctrines as uh, Christ dying for your sins or the resurrection. It was, it was quite an eye-opener. Well, basically, I'm sure that there are people who enter the seminaries who really do believe in Christianity and they destroy their faith. And they know exactly what they're doing. And we have many ministers 
here in America today who don't believe in Christianity, who don't believe in the Christian message, but they're trained in it, they get up, and they use the pulpits to undermine the faith of the people or to preach a different Christianity. And, of course, one of the big things is, even with many people who believe in the Christian message, we've changed the nature of God. Now, I believe God loves people. I believe he loved them enough to give his only son that he would die for the sins and salvation of mankind. But, uh, you know, if you read the Old Testament, and if you remember how things were 70 years ago, I remember I'm 84 now, or almost 84 will be this coming month, but certainly at one time we used to hear about fear of God, that God took action against people who violated his ideas. God brought action against nations that turned against him, and if a nation turned against God, God eventually turned against that nation, as he did repeatedly against his chosen people, against the Israelis, and he destroyed them and allowed them to be carried away and as slaves time and again, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and of course this is what happened repeatedly, you know, people would turn against God, and they would be taken into slavery, into servitude, and then they'd return to God, and then things would get to be good again, and then they'd turn against God. Well, that's what's happening in America today. America was founded as a Christian nation, and certainly England at one time was a Christian nation, but they've changed the teaching of the church, and England is no longer a Christian nation, and America is no longer a Christian nation. And one of the biggest things they've done is remove any mention of fear of God. God is only love. There is no nothing to fear from God. We would never accept the idea that God would bring vengeance upon your nation or upon my nation. But that is my fear that this is going to happen. I think it's only a matter of time before these nations are destroyed, before all the wonderful affluent society we have is destroyed. Here in America, we've embraced certainly sexual promiscuity. Basically, half of our Christian marriages end in divorce. What does that say about the influence of Christianity in America today? I suspect it's similar over there. But because the church has lost its position of leadership, because we're much more interested in how many people come to church rather than what they learn in church, why the influence of Christianity has been diluted, and you go to the mega churches in America, and they're preaching a different gospel than the gospel that I learned 70 years ago when I went to church. Yes, and the one thing that does concern me is this uh, prosperity gospel, so-called gospel, where you find that preachers are preaching really that it's all about just praying to God and, and thinking hard enough and you will get rich. And this seems so far away from the gospel that uh, I understand it to be. I agree with you totally, and I share your concern. Are you a minister now, or are you just trying to educate people about the spiritual aspect of what's going on? No, I didn't continue with the ministerial studies for a number of reasons, but that was one of the reasons. But I, I'm, a, I'm a lay preacher, so I still have my finger in that pie, so to speak. God bless you for what you're doing. I just hope you can reach people over there in England, because there is a camaraderie, a common origin between your people and mine. And my family came from Scotland, and uh, we're primarily Scots and English descent. So I feel a camaraderie with the people in England. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. 
Um, could I just turn back to uh, the Trilateral Commission? But you were saying that many people might be skeptical of the things that you said, but no less a person than uh, Noam Chomsky has actually said that Jimmy Carter's government was, he's probably exaggerating, but the whole of his government, he says, came from the Trilateral Commission. Well, for all intents and purposes, it did, basically. There were about 270 members of the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission in Jimmy Carter's government. Remember, of course, there never were more than 80, 85, now I think 87 members of the North American chapter of the Trilateral Commission. So you can't control the whole government, but there are 270 members of the CFR and the Trilateral Commission in Jimmy Carter's government. And when Ronald Reagan ran for president, he was very critical. He brought this out. Uh, he said how terrible it was. Uh, and then, of course, when Ronald Reagan got in, why there were about 270 members of the CFR and Trilateral Commission in Ronald Reagan's government, and he did exactly what he was told after the attempt to assassinate him. Uh, there was an attempt to assassinate Ronald Reagan carried out by the son of a very close friend of George Herbert Walker Bush, the vice president. If anybody thinks that's just coincidence of all the 300 million people in America, the one man who tried to kill Ronald Reagan would be the son of a friend of George Herbert Walker Bush, the vice president who would become president if Reagan had died. I mean, I don't think that's just coincidence. Now, Ronald Reagan, uh, unfortunately, he may have believed in America, but he betrayed our nation because, of course, his life was at stake. He let George Herbert Walker Bush run our country, and George Herbert Walker Bush was a member of the Bilderbergers, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. He certainly was a member of the Skull and Bones Society, a Yale secret Luciferian society. He was a member of the Bohemian Grove, which is another Luciferian organization. He was director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he was president of the United States for four years. About the skull and bones, there was one eye-opener a few years ago where I think both John Kerry and George Bush the Jr. were both on television and both admitted that they belonged to this secret Yale society. Well, what's so interesting about that is that they were interviewed in the 2004 election, and of course they were both being interviewed by this relatively young man, very well-known, a very, very good communicator, certainly working for one of the networks. He asked George Bush... George W. Bush about his membership in Skull and Bones, and George Bush said that's so secret, I can't discuss it. And he asked John Kerry the same question, and John Kerry gave the same answer. The organization is so secret, I can't discuss it. And then the amazing thing that happened was very shortly after this, this very young, popular television host suddenly dies for no apparent reason. He just up and dies. Good heavens. I think that's a good lesson. Uh, you're not supposed to be talking about mm. this sort of thing in public. Can I prove he was done away with? No. But I can tell you I've interviewed at least two professional government assassins. Uh, we have a four-tape set, including my interviews with them. It's called Deadly Assassins, available through my ministry, where I actually interview government assassins who've been assigned the job of killing people here in America. One of them, a man named Chip Tatum, was given the job of killing Ross Perot. He turned it down, and of course said Chip Tatum, nobody knows where he is today. 
The other assassin was Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Marvin. He was told to ask if he would kill a naval commander who supposedly was a subversive. Man wasn't subversive at all. He just had information on the assassination of John Kennedy. They didn't want to get out. Colonel Marvin turned that assignment down, and within a few months, the commander was dead. Supposed suicide. I've even talked to other people, interviewed Gary Webb, who had actually um, written about the CIA and drugs. Mm. He ended up committing suicide by shooting himself in the head twice to make certain he was dead. That's an amazing feat, Dr. San. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, the average person in your country and mine just doesn't want to believe this sort of thing could really go on. We know it goes on in other countries, but it can never go on in your country and mine, and it goes on all the time. We're dealing with people who have no moral conscience. We're dealing with people who are Luciferian. And when you understand that, the move towards world government begins to make sense. You mentioned the Bilderberg Group in the list of societies a few minutes ago, and I did want to ask you about that. Twenty years ago or so, when I was first listening to you, there was no mention of it anywhere, was there, in the media. But in recent years, it has begun to, but I think largely due to the Internet, uh, it has begun to pop up in the mainstream media just a little bit. Well, certainly the Bilderbergers was organized in 1954 by Prince Barnhart of the Netherlands. And basically, uh, he got together the financial uh, leaders of the West. Now, this does not include Asians. It includes people in Europe and the United States. And they meet on a yearly basis. The people who control the major banks, the people who control the major media, the major corporations, probably 30 or 40 people who come to every meeting. Then, of course, they invite others to come to the meetings and, of course, they discuss what's going on. They simply have lectures. One of my friends actually attended a Bilderberg meeting at that time. He was an American ambassador, very prominent, and he still is very prominent. He spoke at one of our recent meetings. But he said, you know, when he was at the Bilderberger meeting, he didn't hear anything secret discussed. And I'm sure that he, as a guest, invited guest, would never hear anything The major decisions are made and closed meetings for this small number of the permanent members. The permanent members are people like David Rockefeller, Lord Rothschild, Zygmunt Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, and you can go down the list. The information's up on the Internet. A gentleman I've interviewed a number of times, James Tucker, uh, who was, I think, in, in the media for 30 years. He actually retired he had never heard of the Bilderbergers, and of course, then he went to work for the American Free Press, and of course, they helped to finance him. And he's actually been able to get to the various meetings since then. And he always comes out with a list of the people who attended and what was done inside. I rather think this information is fed to James Tucker because I think they want to focus our attention on the Bilderbergers rather than the Trilateral Commission. You almost never hear about the Trilateral Commission. There's a great deal of mention in the press, uh, certainly in the conservative press and on the Internet about the Bilderbergers, and I really do believe that this is a diversion. I believe the meetings are held, but I believe the real power is in the Trilateral Commission. I believe the meetings of the Bilderbergers are simply to focus our attention there. Rather than on the Trilateral Commission, I mentioned, of course, that every president and or vice president of the United States from 1977 up until 2008 came from the membership roles. A small number of people, six of the eight world trade representatives from the United States came from there. Eight of the ten trade representatives 
and then seven of the 12 secretaries of state and nine of the 12 secretaries of defense. But in that period of 77 to 2008, they all came from the Trilateral Commission. All of the important organizations that determine American foreign domestic policy are dominated by members of the Trilateral Commission. And yet about one in a thousand Americans understands that. So you're saying that the Bilderberg really is a kind of second-order organization. That does seem to make sense. They have this meeting each year where they have all these very showy limousines that turn up and they have this definite stance towards the media of you're not allowed in to see what's going on. So all of this creates a mystique, and I agree with you. It does therefore attract a great deal of attention to what's going on there. But you're saying that's not really where most of the action is taking place. Absolutely, in my estimation. Mm -hmm. And I... I mean, I've been at this for 50 years, and uh, I'm not always right, but I, I really believe, of course, that this is a diversion. They know how to manipulate us, and they do such a magnificent job. And most people think the Bilderberg is the center of what's going on. It's really not. It's the Trilateral Commission and the Luciferian forces that dominate that. Well, that's very interesting. Nevertheless, the Bilderberg it is a private club of elite members, and they do say that what goes on there is, well, it's just a, a big talking shop, essentially. And they kind of hide behind a technicality, I think, because they say, well, it's a private club, so we're not really meeting together in, in our capacities, in our whatever, whatever capacity we have. We're, we're meeting together as people who just happen to hold these positions. Right. But that seems to me to be disingenuous, really. I think they're rather hiding behind that technicality because they, they wouldn't be there unless they were the people who hold these particular positions. Do you agree that it is a little bit disingenuous? Oh, I think the whole thing is disingenuous. Uh, and certainly you very, very seldom will see any mention in the regular media about it. But fortunately, we have the Internet. Mm. Fortunately, we have alternative radio, which I play a small part in. As a result, there is at least... Uh, a significant number of people in the United States who know what's going on, and the people there in England, once they can begin to utilize their computers, can hear people like Alex Jones and Joyce Riley. They can hear our programs at RadioLiberty.com, Butch Paw, John Leffler, Noah Hutzings. When a lot of the people here in America are getting the information out, we're reaching literally millions of people every day. And of course, through the Internet, why all of this information is available, if we can just get people to research it and to understand what is at stake. Because what's at stake is the survival of Christian civilization, and they really do intend to kill and murder the vast majority of the Christians in the world. That's what Barbara Marks Hubbard said in her book, and that is the plan today. And that would be the inner circle, wouldn't it? Of course, I'm quite sure that many members of, let's say, the Bilderberg wouldn't be aware of that. Of course not. They don't know. In fact, a lot of them don't even understand the spiritual implications. They don't understand that there, there really is a mystical world out there. These are people who live in a material world. They don't understand there's a mystical world. There's a supernatural world. There really are supernatural forces. But if you're a Christian, of course, you have to believe in the supernatural. So how could it be that people will believe the Bible, and yet they don't understand that that supernatural world that existed 2,000 years ago when our Lord walked the earth, that supernatural world is here today. And, of course, the demonic forces that were at work at that time are at work today. 
Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm sure some people, again, would be sceptical about the one-world one government ideals of something like the Bilderberg Group. But I have before me here a quote from Dennis Healy, well-known to people here in the UK. And this is a quote from an interview in The Guardian, where Dennis Healy actually says, to say we were striving for a one-world government is exaggerated, but not wholly unfair. There is their admission that that is what it's about, really. Unfortunately, it is. And, of course, uh, there is this Anglo-American combination, your country and my country. The leaders of the two countries work closely together. When we go to war, England goes to war. When England goes to war with the Falklands, there's only one country in the world that supported them, the United States. And the average individual can't understand what's going on today unless they understand the secret societies that dominate your country and mine. So how can people hear more about your work? Because you have this radio station, Radio Liberty. Do you still broadcast on shortwave across to the whole world? Well, we broadcast, and whether the shortwave gets to uh, England, I really don't know. We do a program from 4 to 5 every day on WWCR. I think it's 3.195. I don't know what time 4 o'clock in the United States would be in England. People can get us onto the Internet. That's probably the, the best way to get our programs. They can hear us there. If they uh, have an iPad, an iPhone, or a regular computer, where well, they can get us 24 hours a day. We do five hours a day. Four hours a day are posted on our website at radioliberty.com. And then the programs are archived, so if they miss them, they can pick them up later. So what a wonderful means we have of reaching people. We just have to get them concerned enough that they'll take the time to listen. Mm -hmm. And you do, is it five hours a day of radio? Five hours of talk radio. I think we do more than anybody else. Obviously, we're just not very well organized. Most people say everything they need to in an hour or two, but it <laughs> takes us five hours. So it's just what a wonderful privilege it is at this time to have the opportunity to get out the message. And as you know, I'm not a trained theologian. I never went to seminary. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. But I believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the reason I do what I do is hope to bring people into a personal relationship with our Lord. But I'm not going to get it simply by preaching the gospel. I'm going to get it by hopefully getting people to realize there's a problem. And when they start to look for an answer, the only answer is our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that's going to sustain us during the terrible times that lie ahead and terrible times do lie ahead will be our Lord. And uh, lastly, you mentioned your book, Brotherhood of Darkness, which is a very good resource to begin finding out about this. Uh, but in addition to that, are there any other books or resources that you would suggest for people? Well, of course, we suggest Professor Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. It's 1,342 pages, but it's well worthwhile reading. His other book, The Anglo-American Establishment, and this will give you the overview of the secret society, the one that controls your government and my government today. And then, of course, a book, Foundations, Their Power and Influence, written by Rennie Warmser back in 1959, somewhere in there. And this is the story of the great tax-exempt foundations and how they've been financing communism and socialism and Marxism and trying to change the very structure of the United States and other nations throughout the world, from free enterprise system to, to a socialist dictatorship. Foundations, their power and influence. 
Another book we recommend is The Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow by Constance Cumbie. And of course, I've been studying this for 20 years, from 62 until 82, and I knew I was missing something. There had to be some other force out there I didn't understand. And Constance Cumbie's book, The Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow, took us into the occult world Luciferian movement. And the book's out of print now. I'm sure you can get used copies, but the book is well worthwhile reading. And we think it's a very, very important book, The Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow. And that in my book, Brotherhood of Darkness, if people will read those, those five books will change the way they look at the world. I believe that Constance Cumbie has actually made that book available on her website as a download these days. Yes, yes, you can actually pull it off the website. She's been at this battle and she's a good friend. We've come to be good friends in the last 30 years or more. So we uh, get her on our program from time to time and she has me on her program and then we we share a radio network of the microwave network and uh, she's on there Tuesday and Thursday. I'm on Monday, Wednesday and Friday for an hour. Well, Dr. Stanley, it has been a a great privilege, absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. As I say, I've been listening to you for many years, and so you can imagine how I feel to have you now on my show. That is absolutely fantastic. I'm very grateful to you for agreeing to be on this show in the very early days of, of what I'm doing here. So thank you very much indeed for your time. Well, I wish you well. I just hope you can get the word out, get people, of course, to understand what's going on from a geopolitical point of view, but much more important get them to understand that this is a spiritual battle that's fought on a cultural and certainly political and ideological battlefield. But it's a spiritual battle, and hopefully your ministry will lead people to our Lord. God bless, and it's been a pleasure to be with you.